Welcome to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Chloe Rogers, and I'm the Digital Engagement Director here at Rolling Hills. In our current series, Refine, we've been looking at the seven deadly sins and how we can fight these sins together. And today we're talking all about greed. Money can have a tight hold on many people's lives. It can cause unhealthy habits and deeply affect relationships, both with others and with God. That's why we want to not only learn to fight greed, but to also grow in generosity in all ways. And the best part is you're never fighting alone. So let's learn to fight together. Thanks for joining us today. There may be a spot in your heart where you see some of these sins flash up on a screen with the catchy music and you begin to get a little bit uncomfortable. That is intentional. No, I'm just kidding. Hey, good morning. My name is Nick Allen, and I am fortunate to get to be the campus pastor of this location of Rolling Hills, and we're in the middle of a series. If this is your first Sunday with us, um, just keep tracking. We're in week three of a series on the seven deadly sins. Maybe you grew up with that being a part of your Christian heritage or your tradition. Maybe not, but we're going to be going over all seven. You can rest easy because we've already done lust. That was like two weeks ago. So we're not going to talk about that this morning. We're not going to talk about gluttony. Nobody has to like suck in during the message. We're diving into greed, um, which kind of in some ways hits all of us a little closer to home than we're ready to admit or realize, and I am the biggest offender, I'll go ahead and confess to you that this entire calendar year, every single day, twice a day, because that's the limit, I have registered to be the winner of this year's HGTV Dream Home. It's this luxurious mountain retreat in Warren, Vermont. I have never been there, but I want to go so bad. And if I win the house, I will. And I'll take you with me because it's big, y'all. And it's fully furnished and it's fantastic. It comes with a whole lot of money to pay the taxes that you will inevitably have to pay because that's a big deal, apparently. And it also comes with a Jeep Wagoneer, which I have always secretly wanted. And so I'm super excited. The contest has already passed. None of you can enter now and ruin my chances. Um, but on Wednesday, Tuesday of this week, on the 22nd, I have Googled and read that they will begin contacting the winner, and um, I probably, I'm, I'm just estimating that I won't be allowed to tell you, and I won't be allowed to post it on my social media. I'm sure I'll have to sign some kind of confidentiality clause until the episode hears and airs, and all of America finds out that I indeed won the house this year. <sighs> I like, I like want it, like real bad. It's, it's nice. And so I just want to put that out there that if you have found yourself wanting something that you don't have, maybe you already have a home in Vermont, we should talk, Um, but if you have found yourself wanting the things in life that you don't yet have um, to that kind of a degree, um, then you're in good company this morning, at least with me. We're going to dive into a lot of different parts of scripture that have to do with the idea of greed, what its definition is, and ultimately what it does to our lives. This whole series, we've been bouncing all over what scripture has to say about these seven things, and so we're going to do that today with a lot of our verses coming from the book of Proverbs. It's wisdom literature for us, but if you want to turn your physical analog Bibles to pages that you can bounce back and forth between in the sermon this morning, then you're going to want to go to Matthew at the beginning of the Gospels, chapter 6. Put a little 
bookmark or a ribbon there, and then we're also going to go and dive in pretty specifically to Luke chapter 12, but I'll start with Proverbs eleven twenty-eight. It says, those who trust in their riches will fall. And that word in the Hebrew language, the word for fall, it literally means a couple of different things for us. First, it just means that you fall, as in like fall down, as in like trip over your own feet or a toy or whatever threshold you're kind of walking into. And that just happens from time to time. No shame, no embarrassment. I hear a couple of weeks ago, it happened up there in the balcony, but everybody's okay. We're good. So this idea of falling down, this is what this means, but it also means to fail miserably. And I would much rather fall down skint knees, broken britches, than to fail miserably in life, particularly at something that's really, really important. It also means violent death. So let's just hope this morning that if we've been putting our hope in our riches, that we may fall down and we may fail at something, but we don't experience violent death today. But it says this, the righteous will thrive Um, Some of your Bible translations, including the New American Standards, say the word flourish. It literally means to bud or to sprout or, or to blossom or even to fly. And it also has the connotation of being set free from leprosy. This disease that was prominent throughout all of Scripture, you read about it. This whole, like social distancing was alive and well in Scripture because if you had leprosy, you were put on the outside of the community because people didn't want to be around you in the communicable disease that you had. And so they knew what to do. But this whole idea of thriving, of flourishing, flourishing, it's the picture of being set free from something that has ailed you, something that has separated you, so that you can be a part of the family. Again, it's a really good picture, and it's also a really good opportunity because Scripture says it, the righteous will thrive. I can promote our college ministry that happens on Monday nights right here in this room at seven o'clock because it's called Thrive, and that's what we want. We want to be a people who flourish, and it's not our riches that are going to help us do that. Um, It's our rightness before Almighty God it says we'll thrive like a green leaf. And this has been in your notes all series, and it's going to continue as long as I have breath and opportunity to teach on Sunday mornings to be a part of this series. We may list seven deadly sins. You can list 700 deadly sins. It doesn't matter. You can list two. Deadly. It doesn't matter how many you list. All sin leads to death. And make no mistake, here's my add-on for this week. We're all guilty. We're all guilty. Scripture says in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because what? All sinned. Every single one of us has made mistakes. Every single one of us has erred. Every single one of us has struggled. And the reasons why these seven are identified and set apart and put in a category since the fourth century of seven deadly sins is this. They lead to other sins. These sins birth other sins in our life. And you can say that, okay, yeah, lust, it leads to all sorts of ill, include adultery, uh, pornography, addiction, all sorts of sexual immorality. That comes from all these other sins are born from the idea of just lusting after something in our life. Gluttony certainly leads to a whole host of unhealth and a, a big set of envy leads to division and wrath leads to conflict and anger and greed leads to a lot. So we're going to talk about that this morning. If you're looking for a definition, you can handwrite it in the notes that were provided for you that came in this morning. You can follow along with the app and fill in blanks as you go. Greed is the disordered love of or desire for increased riches. It's the love of or desire for increased riches. So we look at scripture this morning to figure out what that means for us. 
Matthew chapter 6. It's in the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the longest recorded discourse that we have teaching time of Jesus. It says in verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And I read that word vermin and I immediately think of Vermont and it makes me think of, oh, how nice that house is. <laughs> but that's not it. Like, and some of you grew up reading this passage of scripture and, and like going through and like, oh, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where ro- uh, moths and rust. You, you didn't read the word vermin. That's like a change and an update in 2011. But you read the word rust. And, and both of it is a picture of something that literally comes and eats away at things. You know, you get a hole in your clothes. It's because a moth ate it. You know you get a hole in the side of your car. It's because rust literally ate the metal. The things that matter to us can literally be eaten from the inside out, and that's the picture. Don't store up yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this isn't just treasure as in the prized item. This is treasury, like where you put the prized item. The literal definition of the word is a, a casket or a coffer. It's your treasure box. It's your, it's your storehouse. It's your repository. It's the receptacle where you keep your valuables in life. Maybe you have a black box at your house that locks up and it's like fireproof. That's where you put your most important things. That's what this is. I also read as a part of the definition, it was a magazine. And I was like, a magazine? As in like flipping through the HGTV catalog where they tell you all about the dream home? No, not a magazine like that, but a magazine where you put important things like am ammunition. That's the word magazine. Some people think ammunition is important. And so here we go. We've got things that matter. It's where you put stuff that matters to you. And I read this part about where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And I start to wonder, is the bigger disaster that your, your treasure was taken, that your treasure was eaten, or that because your heart was there, it got ruined in the process? I think the bigger danger is not that our stuff gets messed up, but that our heart becomes a casualty of our stuff getting messed up. If you skip down to verse 24, it literally says that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And it's literally the picture of mammon or personal wealth or the things that we value. Here's an uncomfortable truth where we start this morning is that money can buy happiness. You're like, wait a minute, is that not a typo? Shouldn't we be saying money can't buy happiness? Mother, money can buy happiness, but only if you live in abject poverty. Only if you are living in, at that point, the the idea of money or a physical resource or some sort of blessing, it actually can elevate your level of happiness in life because it provided for a need that was so desperate. But once you have enough, to meet your basic needs, and arguably that is so many of us in the room. Once we have enough to meet our basic needs, any increase in our wealth, including a home in Vermont, does not increase our happiness. Like literally, I'm going to be no happier on February 23rd when I found out that I won that house and that Jeep Wagoneer and all that money that comes with. Like I'm literally going to be no happier on Wednesday than I am right now because my basic needs are met. And so we know at that moment that money does not buy happiness. It does not increase for us. If you go to the book of Luke in in chapter 12, there's this moment that occurs in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And in verse 15, he says to them, watch out 
Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And I read that, okay, like be on guard against all kinds. There's more than one kind of greed, apparently, because Jesus says it in Scripture. If you look in the context, it explains the scenario. If you head to the end of chapter 11, it says that the Pharisees were literally observing and watching and like stalking around everything that Jesus did in order to trap him and to catch him and to ruin his ministry and his life. And they really just wanted him out of the picture. So we've got the Pharisees pressing in. And then at the start of chapter 12, it says that the crowds were massing themselves around them. It literally says at the beginning of chapter 12, that people were stepping on each other to get to Jesus. It's like the worst Walmart moment on Black Friday and the worst like crowded room at the Bridgestone where people are literally pressing in, trying to get closer, trying to find. That's the way that the crowds were responding to Jesus. And so what did he do at the beginning of chapter 12? He began to tell them that the yeast of the Pharisees was something that they wanted. Like Jesus was definitely, Scripture doesn't say that he didn't like to poke the bear because the Pharisees are after him, the crowds are pressing in, And he begins to teach them about how bad the ideology of the Pharisees and the religious leaders are. And in the middle of that, in verse 13 of chapter 12, it says that a guy basically raised his hand, interrupted the teaching, and spoke out and said, Teacher, hey, uh, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. A lot of scholars indicate that his brother was probably right there in the crowd. So literally, he's calling out his brother in front of his brother, in front of Jesus, in front of the disciples, and in front of everybody else in the moment. Scholars also agree that that the brother in question is the older brother, which would mean that he not only got a bigger portion of the family estate, but he was the executor of the will. He was the executive who was supposed to divvy out all the other parts of it. Oh, be on guard against all kinds of greed the kind that makes me want what I don't have to the point of shaming my brother in front of a whole crowd of people in order to get it, and then also the kind of greed that forces me to want to keep what I do have and make sure nobody else gets a chance. Be on the lookout against every kind of greed. And then Jesus goes on as he he ultimately and always kind of did. He tells a story, a, a parable This time it was about barns, it was about wealth. He told him that the ground of a certain rich man yielded this crazy harvest and that the guy was forced to try to figure out, hey, hey, what am I gonna do with all of this stuff? What am I gonna, I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. Store. You know, as of 2020, There are an estimated 45,000 storage facilities, not like individual units, but like whole storage complexes in the United States that new construction over storage units and facilities has tripled over the last five years. There is now an estimated 6.5 square feet, which I know is not a lot, but listen to this. 6.5 square feet for every single person in the United States to store extra stuff. It's, it's not companies and corporations. 80% of industry revenue is households, and it's $38 billion a year, and these are safe estimates. Safe estimates indicate that 90% of the storage facilities in the world are in the United States. 
the rest of the world only has 10% of worldwide storage units. And I want you to hear me say this. I think my family is the best in the world. Love all y'all, but like my wife and kids, like I just think they're the best. And I can simultaneously think that they're the best and still identify a whole lot of room for improvement, a whole lot of trajectory for what's better in life. I think this church is the best. I've been at Rolling Hills Community Church for almost 15 years, and I've not updated my resume one time in all 15 years. I'm quite confident that even if I tried to open it, it was created in a format that no longer exists, and I would literally have to start from scratch. I've not perpetuated a resume ever since, and I love it. Not only am I convinced, I love this church. It's my favorite church. It's the best church. I love this campus, and I'll literally say, we're just gonna have to pull it out of the recording later today. Like, I like this campus. I think it's the best one of all four, or any future campus. Like, I'll, no, 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 I love it, but I can simultaneously love this church and love this campus and still recognize a whole host of areas for improvement and needs for growth and opportunities for ministry. I'll say I love America, but I can simultaneously love this country and still identify and recognize a whole lot of things that should change, this probably being one of them, because we're a nation of excess, and excess wealth is never, ever, ever a guarantee. Seventy percent of all lottery winners are broke or in financial distress within five years of winning the lottery. Now, this does not include winners of the HGTV Dream Home. That statistic is separate, and there is no data to prove that people who win homes in Vermont lose it in five years. I'll just go ahead and put that out there, but lottery winners, not so much. 70%. 80% of professional athletes, you know they make, all, they make it rain, y'all. Seriously. 80% of professional athletes are broke or in financial distress within two years of their retirement from the sport. Like excess wealth and extra is no guarantee that it's ever going to last. And we know that scripture is true in this moment. Like that's literally what it says. We can understand that greed is the disproportionate trust of ourself, like trusting yourself and trusting your stuff. In verse 19 of Luke chapter 12, the guy says, hey, I, I, I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says to that guy, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who's going to get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. This is what it will be for people who store up for themselves treasures on this earth instead of treasures that are in heaven. You cannot take it with you. And the result of increased greed in our lives is only ever increased heartache. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 25 says that the greedy stir up conflict, just creating chaos wherever they go. But those who trust in the Lord will prosper. That greed never delivers what we hope it will deliver, even if it comes with a Jeep Wagoneer. Like it's never going to give us the happiness and the future and the hope that we desire. Proverbs eleven twenty four says, one person gives freely and gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. I wonder what happened to those two brothers. Luke 12, 21, this is how it's going to be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Greed is 
<laughs> in a really super simple manner, the misdirection of our purpose in life. It's really missing the purpose of what our life is supposed to be about because it's supposed to be about, according to Scripture, loving and serving others. There's this picture of what was going on in the nation of Israel, and it's written down for us in the book of Ezekiel, an Old Testament prophecy book. And you get to chapter 34, and the leaders in the community, the the priests and the kings and the tribal leaders, have really been taking advantage of people. And so God comes to them in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 2, and he says, Hey, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel— prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should shepherds not take care of the flock? Like the whole goal is that the shepherds would take care of the flock. And if you continue to read in Ezekiel chapter 34, eventually God just gets so frustrated with what the shepherds are doing and the ways that they're taking advantage of people and the way that they're living selfish lives and the way that they're only focusing on themselves that he says, I myself will come and be the good shepherd. I will tend their wounds. I will feed the flock. I will take care of them, which becomes a prophecy that indicates who Jesus was so that when Jesus looked at crowds of people and says, I am the good shepherd, they knew that he was talking about, hey, This guy says he's God because God is the good shepherd who is going to come and finally rescue us and redeem us and tend to us and take care of us. Now, Jesus is saying that he's that good shepherd, and then he invites us to be shepherds too. Of the disciples that he called, we we recognize and we know one of them who gets a lot of play in Scripture is a fellow named Peter. And Peter, on the evening that Jesus was arrested, the disciples, they scattered for fear that they might be arrested too, and they knew what was coming around the corner. So he's warming himself by the fire, and he's under the cloak of darkness, and people keep identifying him and recognizing him as somebody who was with Jesus, who followed Jesus, who, who knew Jesus, who was in the inner circle with Jesus, and not once, not twice, but three times, Peter denied Jesus and felt the shame and the weight of denying Christ. So we know that Christ was crucified and that Christ was resurrected. He came back to life, and he spent a period of time with those disciples and with those followers, including Peter, and after breakfast on the beach one morning, He looks at Peter and he says, hey, do you love me? And Peter's like, you know that I do. And and he says, feed my lambs. One time. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I do. And he says, shepherd my people. And then a third time, and Peter got really frustrated in the moment because Jesus was asking him a third time the same question. Hey, do do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep, tend my flock, take care of my people. So we knew that God himself said that he would be the good shepherd and that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And then he invited us to go out and be those same shepherds to take care of one another, to look after one another, to to lead one another, to invest ourselves in one another. And certainly part of that is financially, but this is not a message. Hear me say, you didn't come in and see the word greed this morning and think, oh, this is just a a message about money because financial responsibility and generosity is certainly a part of that, but so is service. Proverbs 11, 25 says this, a generous person will prosper, but whoever refreshes others, read whoever serves others, read whoever loves others, will be refreshed. It's the literal definition of who Jesus is that's prescribed for us in Philippians chapter 2, where we learn that we are to be like Christ, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of us to the interests of others. It's good to go last. 
it's good to give up. It's good to make a sacrifice, and it's good even if it costs our kids in the process. I led the family ministry at the Franklin campus for years and years and years and was responsible for recruiting so many volunteers all the time, and several of the things that I would always get about volunteering in kids' ministry is like, Pastor Nick, if I volunteer in kids' ministry, that means I gotta come to big church for an hour, and then I gotta go serve in kids' ministry for an hour. That's two hours instead of one hour, and I would say, congratulations, you're really good at math. Like, real good. And then a, a lot of people would look at me and say, but yeah, my kids don't like to be there twice. And I would say, well, repetition never hurt anybody. It's a good thing. But even beyond that, it's good for our kids to see sacrifice from us. It's good for them to experience that and even to feel the weight of it on the family. Years ago, when we began family ministry in the life of Rolling Hills, we used to do spring break and fall break mission trips that whole families could go on. And I'm so thankful that those are back and we'll be taking our kids to Phoenix over spring break to serve with a local church planner. And there's other teams going to Atlanta to serve with area ministries because we want to see our kids come alive in the DNA of what it means to be missional and to be sacrificial. And so we're looking forward to that. We took our girls to New Orleans when they were two and three years old to serve with a local church planner in that community. And they served in area ministries and worked hard all day for an entire week. It was also the first place that they had ever taken a shower. And you're like, Pastor Nick, why didn't you clean your kids? No, we did. But they had only ever taken baths. And so we go to New Orleans and we're literally sleeping on the floor in this church and we're using their shower stalls that had been converted upstairs and it's literally the, there was no bathtub so now all of a sudden in order to be clean they have to take showers and the whole mission team some had kids most did not are down the corridors of the hallways and we're taking the girls in there to go ahead and give them a shower at night before bed and they're screaming bloody murder because they don't like the water hitting them and they've never had water hit them in the face before and I'm like oh this is terrible like the sound that they're making it was a sacrifice <laughs> and a learning experience to be in that environment we went to Kentucky to serve in the eastern part of the state in, in an area that was 90% food insecurity. 90% of the community were insecure about food and did not know where their resources were going to come from. And I vividly remember seeing my three-year-old Nora Blake at the time sitting on top of a whole pallet of Little Debbie cakes this high as people passed by with carts. And she would say, which one is your favorite? <laughs> and then get to put it in there as a way to distribute food to people that were in desperate need. And we know that they may not remember that as much as we do, but the hope and the prayer is that serving and sacrifice would be the fabric of their DNA and who they are in life. It's much easier to teach a nine-year-old how to serve than it is to teach a 19-year-old. It's much easier if the identity and the opportunity is already present in their life. And if we're too greedy to understand that our lives are to be about sacrifice and to be about service, it's a whole misdirection of what our purpose actually is. I'll just go ahead and say this, that last week I had the privilege at the nine o'clock service to, to baptize my nine-year-old son in Christ and to celebrate the marker in his life or where, where he had trusted Jesus for forgiveness and salvation was standing before this community to be baptized in water. But it wasn't just me baptizing him. It was every teacher that he's ever had, every volunteer that he's ever had, the people that changed his diapers when he was in the nursery, the people that sang songs with him when he was three, and the people that opened up God 
God's word and look at it with him every single Sunday. They share in not only the blessing, but also in the responsibility of raising a whole generation who will know and sacrificially follow Jesus Christ with their lives. I posted on social media this week, maybe you saw it, maybe you should follow at RHCC Nashville on Instagram because we do a real good job. Like follow it. We posted this week that this Sunday at the conclusion of our nine o'clock service, we were looking for five guaranteed people to stand up and say, okay, put me in. I'll serve with preschool and elementary school kids because I know that it matters. And, and we're looking today for our 1030 service for five additional people to stand up and say the exact same thing so that tomorrow morning when we get together at a staff, we can literally look and pray for 10 people who said yes to serving and investing their lives in the next generation so that we can grow this campus and so that we can see more people come to know and follow Jesus with their lives. So I'll be available at the conclusion of the service. Pastor Patrick Hamilton will be available at the conclusion of the service and Kim Sparkman, our kids minister, is available. You can mark it on a card or you can talk to us personally, but I believe there are five people right here in this room, maybe more, who say, okay, I'll do it. And you will be blessed by it. It's a sacrifice, yes. It will cost you, yes. But it will be worth it because it will be in alignment with the purpose that God has created you for to serve and to love others. At the end of the day, greed is, it's in your notes, disbelief. It's disbelief in God and in his promises. The writer Matthew, recording the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus spoke, he continues and he goes on to say, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. Huh. Birds don't have 45,000 storage facilities. They don't have 6.5 square feet per bird. Okay, I get it. Okay, yeah, they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? When we're greedy, it's, it's disbelief in who God is and what his promises say. You can adopt a scarcity mentality, and basically that says there's not enough. Or you can adopt a self-serving mentality, and that just says, I can do it better my way. That I, I can take care of myself better than God can. Right at the beginning of the pandemic, right at the beginning of the COVID outbreak, and on the heels of so many moments of racial unrest in our country, there's a fellow named Emmanuel Acho. Some of you guys will know him as a uh, an athlete um, who did not lose it all, by the way, he hadn't gone broke, and who also um, has a sportscaster and does all kinds of things, he began making videos called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, and everyone that came out, I watched them, and I thought that they were so fantastic. He began interviewing people and having conversations with different types of people over the idea of race in America, and every one of them was so thought-provoking. And he sits down with a pastor, a big prominent pastor, who's like a celebrity pastor, and I won't even give his name because he's struggled a lot in the last year, but it didn't take away from the fact that the conversation was so good. This pastor is sitting down with Emmanuel Acho, and they're talking about the idea of white privilege. For this morning, I just want you to hear the word privilege. Just hear the word privilege. And he's having a conversation with a friend of his about whether or not it exists. And, and this pastor was saying, yeah, I, I believe that this, this I believe white privilege, I, I believe American privilege, I believe that, that this entitlement of privilege is a real thing. And the other guy looks at him and says, no, it isn't. It, it's made up, it's not real, it's just to put us, like, so they're disagreeing. And, and so the pastor looks at him and he basically says, okay, one of us is wrong, 
One of us is right. We may find out in 10 minutes. We may find out in 10 months. We may find out in 10 years. But one of us is wrong over whether or not this thing is real. And he said, if you're wrong, you are literally stepping over the necks of other people to get ahead in life. And if I'm wrong, I'm going second and I'm serving others. My wrong's better than your wrong. And I began to apply that to so many areas of wisdom in my life where we just don't know the decision that we should make. It applied to masking and social distancing during COVID. It applies to the way that my kids are behaving with one another because two of them share a room. It applies to the ways that we interact in the world and the ways that we serve one another. There's a book called, and a whole idea that centers around the the philosophy of when helping hurts, because we know sometimes helping hurts. It enables people, it demoralizes people, and it doesn't set us up for success in the future. But I would be willing to say this. This is not the Bible. It's just me. Helping may hurt, and in some ways, the way that we live out generosity may be wrong. But no matter how wrong your generosity is, it will never be more wrong than greed. It, it will never be more wrong than greed. You can get it wrong, but generosity is always the better way. The only solution to increased greed in our lives is the reordering of our loves. It's an increased love for Jesus and an increased likeness of Jesus in our lives. Proverbs chapter 3, Paul goes on to write, whatever gains, whatever, whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. No matter what you've been greedy for, no matter what you felt entitled to, no matter what you've desired in life, we consider that a loss. It's secondary to the idea of knowing Jesus and following his word and understanding his truth. This is better than Vermont. It's better than a Jeep Wagoneer. It's better than anything else that I might selfishly desire in my life. And Paul acknowledges that. In fact, he says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. This is not about our righteousness, one that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Tim Keller, a pastor that I love a lot, read his books and try to pay attention to what he says. He says that the only way to reorder our loves is to love God supremely. He just has to be first. The only way to get everything else right in our life is to love God supremely. And when the love that we have for God is primary, loving and serving others will always be the product. When the love that we have for God is primary, loving and serving others will always be the product. Christ-likeness, increased Christ-likeness in our lives always moves us from a place of selfishness, no matter what the degree is, to a place of selflessness in increasing amounts. It moves us from greed to generosity, and that's the goal. Don't sit and listen to this message today and think about only finances, because it is certainly about the ways that we live out generosity to our church and to other people in need and to all the other opportunities that we have. It certainly is about sacrificial giving, 
But even more, it's about servanthood living. It's about the way that we serve, the way that we invest so that we can see other people thrive and flourish and grow. It's about the investments that we make in the treasures that matter. Now, if I had to do it all over again, I would still be trying to win that house in Vermont. <laughs> it's not primary. What's primary is investing life in the things that matter and sacrificially serving others as a way to express a deep love for God. A righteousness that does not come from anything that we do, but only comes from the fact that Jesus loves us and that through him we get to love and serve others best. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you. Thank you for the chance to be here and to open up your word and to trust the truth of what it says. To be invited this morning into a position of humility where the word speaks directly to us. God, it's my prayer this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you've pierced. Because these seven deadly sins are not just the evils that we see in the world, although they are prevalent. It's really more about the evil that we see in our hearts and in our own human desires. So God, because of the promises of your word, would you forgive us where we fail? And would you help us to be a people who live out generously our call in life with every resource we have and every opportunity we're given to love and serve others. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and to his fame that we dedicate ourselves. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you like this podcast, subscribe to it or share it with some friends. You can also check out some of our other great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit us at our website at rollinghills.church. We're thankful for you.